are a good father. You are a loving father, a gracious father who welcomes us into your presence anytime that we want to come to you. Lord, and I pray that we will be growing in our heart to know you and to love you and to follow you faithfully. And Lord, now as we turn our eyes to what has come before us, we recognize that we live here in the 21st century and it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day activities of our lives and in the stresses of now and in the, the current events going on here in America and around the world. It's easy to get caught up in these things and we do recognize we live in the present with an eye to the future. Yet also we stand on the shoulders of many who've gone before us. And that is very true in our faith as well. And so, Lord, today as we study what you have done down through the centuries, I pray that you will give us a desire to learn more about what you have done. That you will give us an appreciation for what you have done and help us to stand in awe of you, of your faithfulness, and of your work through men and women down through the centuries. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you this morning. When you think of October 31st, what comes to mind? You're going to say it out loud. Halloween, yes. Halloween is that day when children dress up in fun costumes and they go door to door and get all kinds of candy. And it's a day when we oftentimes see a lot of jack-o'-lanterns and and spider webs and skeletons and haunted houses. That's Halloween, October 31st. But October 31st also carries another title, a lesser-known title, and that title is Reformation Day. For back in the early 1500s, there was a Catholic monk named Martin Luther who grew concerned with some of the things that he saw happening in the Catholic Church. And so he made a list of these concerns, and on October 31st, 1517, he posted that list on the door of a church in his town of Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st, 1517. Now, little did he know that that list, which became known as the 95 Theses, would be transformational in leading a movement that became known as the Reformation that really transformed all of Europe and continues to have deep ramifications for our lives even here today in 21st century America. October 31st, 1517. So this year, 2017, We on October 31st are celebrating the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of that church. And this continues to have a deep impact on us today. For even here at Frieden's Church, we trace much of our spiritual heritage back through this Protestant Reformation. And from now until October 31st, we are going to be digging in to study the relevance and the history of the Reformation. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. These first two weeks of the series, we are going to be looking at some of the history surrounding the Reformation. But the core of the series actually focuses on what are called the five solas of the Reformation. Sola is a Latin word that means alone or only. And these five solas describe the main priorities of the Protestant reformers. That, for instance, the ultimate spiritual authority comes from Scripture alone. And that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And on top of this, all the glory goes to God alone. And we are going to be spending a week on each one of these souls. That forms the centerpiece 
of the series. But today we are looking at what I would call a crash course of church history that spans from Jesus up through until the 1500s to really lay the foundation for our understanding of what God did through the Reformation. We're going to start with biblical beginnings of church history. So this spans a time of about 30 to 90 AD. Biblical beginnings, we call it biblical beginnings because it's talking about uh, what is recorded here in Scripture. So I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew chapter 16, picking up in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So we see here in this passage that Peter correctly identifies who Jesus is. That he's not merely a prophet, but he is actually God the Son. He is the Messiah. And Jesus commends Peter and then gives him a new name, the name that we typically know him by, Peter, which means rock. And Jesus then says, I will build my church. So we see here in this passage that Jesus will build his church. This is fundamental in our understanding of what is going on through church history, that Jesus is the primary actor in building his church. We definitely have a responsibility in that process. But Jesus is the one who is doing the big work of causing fruit to be born through his gospel and through the Holy Spirit and through his people. Jesus is the one who ultimately is responsible for building his church. And this is a promise. He says, I will build my church. The mission that Jesus lays out here of building his church is not in question ever. Because Jesus will build his church. And we see as we move on to the book of Acts, the expansion of the early church. The early church began in the city of Jerusalem in Israel. But by the end of the New Testament era and around 90 AD, we see this expanded throughout Turkey and throughout Greece and even over into Rome. And so the church was growing and expanding. As we move beyond what is recorded in Scripture, because again, the testimony of Scripture in terms of the historical uh, aspect of the church ends around 90 AD, but we see that the early Christians were a dedicated and rapidly expanding minority within the Roman Empire. This spans a time of about 100 to 300 A.D. Now in that time, in the Roman Empire, Christianity was illegal. And so there was persecution that sprung up at times against Christians. But the Christians were very devout in their faith. And they were dedicated to meeting together, not in church buildings like this, but in people's homes. Now, a typical gathering of that early church would be significantly smaller than the gathering we have here in the first service this morning. But they were, they were so focused on, on worshiping Christ and on making him known. They, they lived out their faith in their, their day-to-day lives. They were generous in their care for others around them. One historian has said that those early Christians, they, they quote, gossiped 
the gospel. What that means is that they were so in love with Jesus, they could not help but in their everyday conversations just testifying to the greatness of who he is. And as a result of their testimony and Jesus' work in building his church, more and more people, they were becoming followers of Jesus. They were a minority, but a dedicated and rapidly expanding minority in the Roman Empire. Now, a significant change came in 313 AD, and that change was the legalization of Christianity. And what spurred that on was that the emperor of the Roman Empire, Constantine, had a very dramatic conversion to the Christian faith. And then in 313 AD, he legalized Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. It was no longer criminal to be Christian. I mean, that's a big change, to no longer be criminal to be a Christian. And so Christianity was not yet the formal official religion of the Roman Empire. That didn't come until 380 AD. But the fact that it was now legal to be a Christian, and especially the fact that the emperor of the empire was Christian, led many people to become Christian as well. And so, so thus began what is called Christendom. Christendom is this dynamic where Christianity is really society's dominant force. And it really did um, carry a lot of weight then in the Roman Empire all of a sudden after being this illegal minority. Now it's becoming quickly the majority um, and vastly influencing society. One of the things that happened was that Christianity uh, and Christians in the church began to wield significant political power. At that point, there was no separation between church and state. None. I mean, the Emperor Constantine had his hands all over what was going on in the church. And it was vice versa as well. For instance, when the Roman armies would go out into battle, regardless of the nature of the war, the purpose of the war, they would go out in the name of Christ. And they would have crosses on their shields. This is this idea of Christianity pervading all of society. Now, there are many good things of this. Christianity was spreading very quickly. Millions and many millions of people were becoming Christians. But there are also some downsides to this. Let me give you an illustration. How many of you are familiar with the uh, movies from the 1970s about Rocky? Probably many of us are, especially if we're not super young. Um, Rocky. Rocky Balboa started out as a scrappy underdog. But he worked hard, he fought, and he won. But what happened as Rocky won and then became rich and famous? He began to compromise. He got soft. And that's what happened to significant portions of the church. Even though it looked prosperous from the outside because millions of people were becoming Christians, Christianity was suddenly trendy and popular. And they were getting these fancy church buildings built all over the empire. Even though it looked prosperous, what happens is that when Christianity becomes popular and people are flocking to it, there are all kinds of motives for doing it. There's no longer persecution to cause people to check their motives. Now they're doing it because that's what everyone's doing. And so that leads to an environment where it's easier to be half-hearted in your faith. And on top of that, mixing Christianity with political power can lead to some very unfortunate outcomes, which happened a number of different times back in that era. But it wasn't all negative. On the positive side, there were many people who were becoming sincere followers of Jesus. And on top of this, so many changes in that society can be traced. Positive changes, good changes can be traced 
to, directly to the influence of Christianity. And so the legalization of Christianity and expansion of Christianity through the Roman Empire was a huge part of church history. Now, this is a crash course. I mean, we're basically looking at some of the key parts, but skipping over a lot of things that happened back then. But let's move on to another era, what I will call controversy in the church. Now, I, I put on some dates, 325 A.D. to 1054 A.D. Reality is controversy in the church is not confined to that era. And there was a whole lot more that happened during that time frame besides just controversy. But for the sake of our crash course, it's helpful to look at a couple different controversies that shaped the direction of the Christian church. First of all, there was theological controversy. There are just some big questions about the nature of God and the nature of Jesus. Okay, who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? Is he human? Is he in some manner both? And if he is both, how, how do those two parts, his divinity and his humanity, work with each other? Or if, if Jesus is God, if he is God the Son, how does he relate to God the Father? These were some huge, huge questions. And so, in the, in the face of these questions and the controversies that surrounded them came what are known as church councils. The first church council came in 325 AD. It was a group of 220 church leaders brought together by the Emperor Constantine. He brought them together to try to keep unity in his kingdom. So these 220 church leaders came together in the city of Nicaea in 325 AD. And they deliberated and studied scripture to try to discern what is the relationship between God the Son, Jesus, and God the Father. And what is the nature, who, what is the nature of, of Jesus? Fully God or something less than God? And so these were some huge things that they were trying to hammer out. And their conclusions were written in what we now know as the Nicene Creed. It's called the Nicene Creed because it originated from the church council that met in the city of Nicaea. Nicaea, Nicene. And so that was the first church council. There were others that followed over the centuries. But it's important to understand that those early church councils, they were not trying to invent new Christian doctrine. If you read, for instance, the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, he says, well, the Trinity was invented by the Council of Nicaea. They did not invent the Trinity. The purpose of these early councils was in the face of some confusion and questions and, and some people teaching alternative things. Their focus was to dig into Scripture and to clearly identify what is biblical teaching on these topics? And to lay that down so that it's clear, you know what, this is what the Bible says, rather than having a lot of different people saying a lot of different things. And so you had church councils that were addressing some of the theological controversy. Another major controversy was between the East and the West. Now the East up there, just to give you a picture of this map, that's, that's Europe and, and mainly yellow. The yellow represents more Western Christianity, which focused on the Roman Empire. The blue on that map focuses more on the East. And there is tension that was developing over the centuries because they each were dominated by different empires, the Byzantine Empire in the East, the, the, the Roman Empire in the West. They spoke different languages, Latin versus Greek. They, they um, had theological differences as well. And there were tensions that were growing through the centuries. But it all came to a head in 1054 A.D. You see, the Western church 
based in the Roman Empire, based in Rome, what we know as the Roman Catholic Church now, they believed that the bishop of Rome, so the main church leader in Rome, also known as the Pope, has the supreme spiritual authority over all Christians around the world. And in 1054, he tried to assert that authority over the East. And, and the church in the East did not really like that very much. And so he had some fireworks going on, a lot of drama. They ended up, both churches ended up excommunicating each other. And, and thus began a division between East and West in 1054 AD that persists till this day. And if you look at church history down through the centuries, the church kind of looks like a family tree. Here's a, a, just a picture of the church's family tree up until a point. Uh, you have the early church, which was, I mean, it had diversity within the early church, but at the same time, the overall, there is a united strand of what was going on in the early church. But then in 1054, you had this major split. And the split became two separate Christian churches. You had the Catholic Church, and you had the Orthodox Church. Catholic Church in the West, Orthodox Church in the East. We in America typically aren't all that familiar with the Orthodox Church, but the Eastern Orthodox Church is still active. You may have heard of the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. That's one branch of the church family tree. But the other branch is the Catholic branch based in Rome. And that is the branch that we are more familiar with here in America. That's the branch the Protestant Reformation comes off of, as we'll see next week and following uh, this, this family tree of, of Christianity and church history expands a whole lot after the Protestant Reformation. But I want to focus in just for a few moments on this Catholic branch of the family tree, the Roman Catholic Church. One of the things to understand about the Catholic Church is that the Catholic Church self-identifies as the one true church that Jesus established. Now, you may be wondering, okay, what is their biblical basis for this? Well, one of the main places they look is that passage I read earlier from Matthew chapter 16, especially verse 18, where Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so the straightforward reading of this is that, okay, Jesus changes Peter, Simon's name to Peter, which means rock, and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. So a straightforward reading of this is that Jesus will build his church and that Peter will play a pivotal role as a major leader, maybe the, the premier leader in the early church. And as, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that it largely bears that out, that Peter was the primary leader in the early church. Now that is a straightforward reading of this passage. But the Catholic church goes a step beyond what is written right here specifically. And they believe that what Jesus was doing here was establishing a succession of authoritative leaders who will always be singular authoritative leaders over the entire church. That Peter was the first pope, if you will, and that from Peter came a spiritual succession of popes who will be singular leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, that is the interpretation and some of the biblical basis for this idea that, well, the Catholic Church is uh, the one true church. So, um, I mean, I'm sure we'll be getting into this more in the coming weeks, but one of the other things to understand is this idea that the Catholic Church is led by the Pope. Pope means father. That, that's the meaning of that word. 
And again, according to the Catholic Church, the Pope, who is the Bishop of Rome, the, the main leader in Rome is the Pope, the Pope has unparalleled spiritual authority. So that, for instance, when he speaks about doctrinal issues within the church, it is believed that he speaks infallibly, meaning without error. He speaks truth directly from God when he speaks in doctrinal issues in the church. So the church is led by the Pope, and it's based, as its name implies, based in Rome. Now I want to move back to our crash course on church history to kind of bring some of these pieces together And as we approach historically the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, we have to understand that Europe, in many ways, was ripe for Reformation. I mean, it really was. Let's look at the time frame of about 13 to 1500 A.D. And remember, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of that church in 1517. So we're looking at the couple centuries right before that. One aspect of what was going on in Europe was social angst. For one thing, over these centuries, a number of famines swept through Europe, leaving people desperate for basic survival. On top of this, there was the bubonic plague in the mid-1300s, also known as the Black Death. And during that time, almost 40% of Europeans died. I mean, death was everywhere. People were terrified. On top of this, there was a huge disparity between the rich and the poor in Europe. And the poor got frustrated with this, especially as people were dying and and people were spread more thin in their work and in what's available. And so there were revolts throughout Europe during this time. An even bigger threat, though, was the Ottoman Empire to the east. It was threatening to come in and overrun Europe. And so... And so you had all these threats, this social angst. And, and as the people who were religiously devout, I mean, pretty much all of Europe identified as Christian, so they're religiously devout. They're interpreting all these things, the famine, the plague, the, the injustices, the revolts, the war. They're interpreting these things as possible divine judgment. I mean, it's, it's a heavy, deep, hard time for them. And they're wondering, they're thinking, you know what? God's bringing judgment upon us. So they're looking to the church and asking, okay, what do we do now? But the Roman Catholic Church had plenty of its own problems during this time as well. I'll just highlight one of the strands of problems, and that was crises in church leadership. One was confusion with the popes. Remember that the Roman Catholic Church is based in Rome. Rome, the city, and the historical significance of that, the spiritual significance is is huge in the beliefs and the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, in 1309, a Frenchman was appointed as the Pope, but he didn't really want to move to Rome. So he decided to leave the church from his hometown in France. Now, for many, this didn't go over very well. But then for the next six popes after him were also French, And they also decided to follow his lead. So they led from France as well. Now this really irked uh, the the, um, Italians especially. And so after, I think, 69 years of, of the papacy leading from France rather than Rome, after 69 years, there was a mob of Italians... That, that, that pretty much forced uh, an election of an Italian pope who would rule from Rome. And so you had this new, po- new, new pope who was elected to rule from Rome. 
But then the French leaders of the Catholic Church didn't really like the papacy being back in Rome, so they elected their own um, pope over here in France. And so here you have, rather than one pope, you have two popes who did not like each other at all. They, they started um, arguing with each other. They, they called each other servants of Satan. They excommunicated one another from the church. They demanded allegiance from all Christians worldwide. So you have this controversy going on, and the, the church leadership realized this isn't very good. They have two different popes. And so they organized the church council who, who really deposed those two popes, said you guys are no longer popes. And then they elected uh, a new pope. But those two popes who were thrown out didn't like being thrown out. They said, no, we're still popes. And then this other pope who'd just been elected said, I'm the pope too. So suddenly you have three popes. And you can imagine the confusion that is going on here. This continued of having multiple popes for 37 years. So you add that together, 37 years of multiple popes with so many other years of the papacy being based in, in France rather than Rome. It's over 100 years of confusion at the very top of the Roman Catholic Church. And so you can see why people are a bit confused about what's going on. Another level of this confusion uh, of the crisis was with the morality of church leadership. Now, these are things that, um, I mean, even Catholics today will recognize, you know what, these things are going on, and they are not pretty parts of our church history. I can point to plenty of parts of Protestant evangelical church history that are not pretty either. But I think in understanding the Protestant Reformation and the circumstances that led up to it, it's valuable to understand what it was like to be um, a Christian, be a part of a church back in those years leading up to the Reformation. Moral failure among church leadership was huge during that time as well. Just one type of example is that you probably are aware that the Roman Catholic clergy are called to celibacy. And people back then knew it as well. The Catholic clergy, whether priests or even up to the Pope, are called to celibacy, abstain from marriage, abstain from sexual activity. Well, that wasn't exactly happening. In Germany, for instance, there was a, a relatively small district uh, within the Catholic Church where um, the bishops actually throughout Germany began to assess fines for every child that was fathered by a, a, a Catholic priest. And so those fines show that in one small district, the priests had fathered 300 children. 300 children. Now, in a larger district of Germany, another bishop was doing the same type of thing. In this larger district, priests had fathered almost 2,000 children in that district. Now, it's hard to get our minds around that type of thing, but we do have to understand there were a lot of priests. Um, a significant portion of the population in that time were priests or other leaders in the Catholic Church. It's not like a church today where we have two pastors here at Freedens and stuff like that. I mean, there were a lot of priests, but still that shows how rampant it was for, for, for church leaders to not be engaged in celibacy. And they even went on up to the papacy where popes, were also fathering children during that time. Popes were known to have mistresses during that time. Now, there's nothing wrong with sexual activity and fathering children in the context of marriage, but everyone knew that the clergy are supposed to be celibate, and everyone knew that the clergy are sleeping around and fathering children. And so this was a hypocrisy that led many people to question the spiritual authority of the church leaders. So there are crises in church leadership that were, were kind of sowing the seeds for the Reformation. 
And all this led to calls for reform. Now, people weren't necessarily questioning Christianity, and they weren't wanting to leave the church, because besides, if you're a Christian back in ancient Europe, or just 500 years ago in Europe, if you're a Christian, there's nowhere else for you to go. That Catholic church is the only game in town. It's not like you have another church down the street that you can jump down to, and becoming an atheist or, or turning to another religion was not a viable option, really, in Europe at that point. And so people weren't trying to denigrate the church. They weren't trying to leave the church or destroy the church or start a new church. They wanted to purify the church. They wanted to bring reform. Now, Martin Luther was certainly not the first person to call for reform. But his calls for, for reform stuck in a way that previous calls did not. Now, some of the loudest calls for reform came from a group of, of well-educated people called humanists. Now, these humanists, among other things, wanted to um, study ancient writings in their original languages. It's one of the hallmarks of this early humanist movement. If you are familiar with humanism today, secular humanism, it's a different type of movement than that. This is more focused on the humanities. But these people, these humanists, were very interested in studying ancient writings in their original languages. So they were very interested in studying the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. They were very interested in studying the writings of the early church fathers in the first few hundred years after the time of Jesus. And as they studied these things, especially the early church fathers, they came across theology. They had become obscured by hundreds of years of church tradition. And this helped pave the way for the Reformation. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. Now, we've just covered a crash course of 1,500 years. Just some of the, uh, the brief highlights just to help us understand the Reformation, understand a little bit of our spiritual heritage as well. But I hope that through all this you see God's faithfulness, that God has been faithful down through the centuries, that Jesus is building his church even through the messiness we can be thankful for this because, you know what? Life today is very messy as well. You'll never meet a perfect church. Some, including Freedons, are hopefully relatively healthy and healthier than others. But, but at the same time, God works through the messiness. Jesus is building his church. And one of the things that strikes me as I study, especially the, the Reformers, is at least at the beginning their desire for church unity. They understood that Jesus wants his church to be united. They understood, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, they understood that we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. They understood that there is to be unity here. So they did not want to destroy the church. They didn't want to rip it apart. They wanted to reform it, to bring it back to faithfulness to God. Now, I referenced earlier the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. I want us to recite that together this morning. Because it's one of those hallmarks that unites Christians of all sorts, whether Protestant, whether Catholic, whether Orthodox, because it comes from before all these splits took place. Now, if you were like me, you may have grown up in a church where you recited the Nicene Creed. I looked it up in a hymnal of the church where I grew up because I have a variety of hymnals on my, on, my, um, on my shelf. I could still remember the page number. 
of the Nicene Creed from when I was growing up because we recited it so often. I had no idea what the history of these creeds were, and they didn't really mean much to me. But understanding the history of where they came out of as these, these church leaders were just wrestling with what is biblical theology. And they were deliberating over every single word, and they were trying to make the right choice to the best portray what is biblical teaching about the nature of God. It takes on added meaning. So I want to invite us now to stand. We're going to, before we sing our closing song, before the Forever Family's testimony, we are going to recite the Nicene Creed together. Now, one uh, brief note. You may be familiar that near the end of the creed, there is a line that says, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What that points to is not the Roman Catholic Church. It points to the original meaning of the word Catholic, which means universal. Remember, this was written in 325 A.D., well before the Roman Catholic Church took on that type of identity. And so by saying we believe in one holy Catholic Church, we're saying we believe in the church worldwide that Jesus is building. So I invite us now to recite the Nicene Creed together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We will come again to glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who is spoken through the prophets. We believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and for the life of the world to come. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have been faithful to work down through the centuries. And even as we recite the, this creed, it has so many elements in it that are so familiar to us about the nature of who you are and what you've done down through history. And we're thankful for the many men and women who have been faithful to you down through the centuries on whose shoulders we stand today, who have laid a foundation for the faith, who have set an example by their lives, even in the face of persecution. Lord, we thank you that down through the centuries, when your church has erred in various ways, that you have sent men and women to call us back to the truth. And Lord, may we know what we believe. May we know why we believe. And may we stand firm on the truth of the gospel and on scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.